Hello, I'm Andy Stevenson and welcome to another episode of A Winning Mindset, Lessons from the Paralympics, a new podcast brought to you by the International Paralympic Committee and long-standing partner Allianz. We want you to hear some fresh perspectives on the world and take some of the things you hear in this podcast into your own personal and professional lives. In this episode, we delve into the world of leadership, crisis management and problem solving with Andrew Parsons, the president of the International Paralympic Committee. As shown dramatically in the Netflix film Rising Phoenix, Andrew played a key role in rescuing the Rio Paralympics and is now at the very top, trying hard to keep the Tokyo Games on next year, despite the coronavirus pandemic. Well, thank you for joining us from uh, Brasilia, I believe, in Brazil. Uh, do I call you Mr. President, Mr. Parsons, or just Andrew? Just Andrew, please. <laughs> That's good stuff. I'm an Andrew as well, so hopefully there'll be no confusion. I have to ask you, uh, as a Brazilian man born in Rio, how did you come to have a name like Andrew Parsons? Because you could have been born in the English countryside with a name like that. Well, my family comes from the UK, so I have uh, English parents. I have a Scottish uh, grandmother, a Norwegian grandfather, Irish grandmother. Uh, great-grandparents so I'm the first generation of my family actually born in Brazil so that's why it, and it's the full name is even worse is Andrew George Whitten Parsons so it's a yeah very very British yeah it's very cosmopolitan background there and um, <laughs> I'm going to start by asking you a little bit about your background and then I really want to get into some questions about leadership and and the goals you have for the International Paralympic Committee so Starting with yourself growing up in, in Brazil, were you much of a sportsman yourself? Would it be wrong to assume you may have played football, for example? I played football a lot. That was my number one sport by far. But I play all sorts of sports. You know, I, I used to compete in the BMX cycling when I was a kid and, and basketball, handball, volleyball, table tennis, uh, all sorts of sports. And, and when I... When I was already an adult, I also tried some equestrian, some dressage and jumping. So I, I practiced all different kinds of sport, but uh, football was always my passion. <laughs> and what moved you into the administration of sport and the, and the Paralympic realm in particular? Well, I was uh, studying communication at the university and I was always a, a, a sport mad. I, and not only about football, but when I was a kid, I read Disney collection of books uh, with uh, different uh, topics. And one was, let's say, Olympic Games and Olympism. So I remember reading about uh, the, the Olympic Games, you know, all the different editions, the Olympic heroes like, you know, Jesse Owens, uh, Nadia Comaneci, all those big international names. And I was always super impressed with uh, with the Olympism. So I was kind of a, a, a little bit different from every Brazilian boy who is only focused on football, was also uh, focused on the Olympic Games. And when I finally discovered the Paralympics was around 1996, the Atlanta Games. I remember watching it on TV. Uh, and then I was already at the university when in 1997, the year after Atlanta Games, I found out that in the city I was living and studying, which is called Niterói in the Rio de Janeiro metropolitan area, the, they were opening the headquarters of the Brazilian Paralympic Committee. So I went there. And I offered myself as an intern. Then it took me only a few weeks to understand that this is what I would like to do for the rest of my life, to be involved uh, with this movement. From intern to president, that is quite a pathway and, and something quite inspiring to hear that you, you, you've moved through and up the the ranks to this position. And I know um, we're obviously going to speak about Rio and the Rio Paralympics uh, later on, because I know you were with the Brazilian Paralympic Committee for that. But 
you became IPC president in 2017. I want to know what it was like taking over from Sir Philip Craven because he had a massive influence in his time and I imagine it's a bit like replacing Sir Alex Ferguson at Manchester United or something. How, <laughs> how were you feeling taking over from him? First of all, it was, a, it was and it is a big honour to imagine that I am in the same position that, you know, Philip has been for 16 years. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's an honour. You know, we are very good friends. But, you know, even being a friend, I can't help but, you know, to see him as someone as, who has made so many big changes in our movement, who was a fantastic athlete, who had the right attitude and the energy, the drive to change things, to fight for things that against things that he thought were wrong. So he's, uh, he's an inspiration. Uh, the funny thing is that he was the first person ever to, to tell me that he thought that I could become the IPC president, and this was in 2009. He asked me about my plans, uh, and I, I, at that point in time, I, I was only a few months as president of the Brazilian Paralympic Committee. So he, says, he asked me, do you think in becoming IPC president in the future? And at that time, I said, oh, look, it would be an honor, but I don't think I... You know, it would be possible for me because uh, I believe that after you, the the concept of having a former athlete as president of the organization, you know, will be will be will be crystallized, will be there. You know, will be the mind and everyone. And then he punched the table and he said, "Bullshit! We we need the right person." And I said, "Wow, thanks for that. I'll, I'll think more about it." Uh, but I really thought that uh, you know maybe after Philip. Being a Paralympian would be something absolutely mandatory. But I think he is right. What we need is the right person. We need the person with the right skills, with the right attitude. And, you know, I think I, I convinced the, the IPC membership that I was this person in 2017. But of course, again, it's an honor to be Philip Craven's successor. And did you feel any pressure, Andrew, taking this particular role on because you don't have a disability? Did that have any uh, impact at all? No, I never felt that pressure. Uh, but of course, during my entire career, people uh, made comments about it when I became the president of, of the Brazilian Paralympic Committee. Um, and it was the same at the International Paralympic Committee level. I do think that I have the right skills, uh, the right attitude, and, and I have a very clear vision of what I want for this organization. You know, I belong to this movement. I don't think the Paralympic movement should be a, a movement only with people with disability. It's what we want to show the world. You know, it's, we want an integrated world, a world where people can feel included. And I feel included in this movement, even though the big stars, of course, are persons with disability, are athletes with disability. But uh, I never felt that pressure, but I know it's something that it was always uh, discussed about me. It's interesting, Andrew, because I'm disabled myself. And so I often hear conversations from people or I, or I see campaigns where people talk about a nervousness of hiring people with disabilities, of working with people with disabilities. You know, what should I say? What shouldn't I say? That kind of thing. Would you have any advice on that in, as somebody in your position? My experience is, experience is you have to treat everyone with respect. So if you treat pers persons with disability with respect and if you have any doubt, just ask. I don't see the reason to being uh, nervous, uh, and I remember this was this was a funny thing when I was uh, when I was an intern and I became uh, I had a I went through a more senior position, 
in the in NPC Brazil. Remember that my boss, who, who was the secretary general, and he was becoming the president of the NPC, and he was blind. He said something to me like, "You know what, Andrew? I like your attitude. I like the way you you connect with people with disability, the way you treat people with disability." And I said, "Well, but I treat people with disability like I treat everyone else." He said, "Exactly." That's it. And, and so from then on, I, re, I, I really understand. So look, as long as you treat them with respect, if you have any doubt, uh, can, I, can I push your wheelchair? Can I help you? Can I guide you? Can I do? If you do it with respect, I think they will understand. So I often hear things like that. Oh, I don't know how to behave. You know, behave normally, respectfully. And if you have any doubt, then just ask what is the best way to assist or to support that person if that person really needs any kind of assistance. I've noticed a clear shift in recent times that the IPC is trying to go beyond sport more and more. And human rights have become a priority, haven't they? How are the Paralympic Games trying to transform society in that respect? Well, I think the Games are a tool, uh, are a catalyst for great athletes to put on great performances in front of, you know, millions of people and billions of people. I think it's an opportunity that we have to really change the world and, and to provoke some discussion. For example, one of the things that we want to have is an impact on the marketplace, in the labor market. So we want more persons with disability working as employees, as uh, entrepreneurs, as owners of uh, business, uh, of bosses, uh, as it happened after the London Games, where now in the UK we have one million people with disabilities more in employment. Because employment means citizenship, you know, you contribute to society, you are doing your part, you are, you know, <laughs> paying taxes. So in a way you are exercising your citizenship as anyone else. And you have this misconcept sometimes that people say, look, to bring someone with an impairment uh, into the, let's say, a company, ah, it's so complicated, accessibility, if the person is blind, you need to adapt and so on. So it's not that complicated. And, you know, diversity should be something that is valued, something that it's not only tolerated or respected, it should be valued. It, reach, it enriches any environment that you're in. So I think the beauty of the world is that we are all different. So sometimes I do not understand why people are so afraid to engage with uh, whoever is different from them. But it's a, it's a tendency. We normally engage or we normally are surrounded by people who are like us. Uh, and we need to break that, if I may call it, that cocoon and go out and understand that the beauty of the world is that we are all different. We have different opinions, different views on things, different backgrounds. And going back to, to where we want to, to get with the Paralympic Games and, of course, our brand statement that, you know, change starts with sport to recognize how, the powerful tool that sport is in, in changing. In our case, it's changing attitudes, it's changing society uh, when it comes to persons with disability, but it can be more. Andrew, how significant is it that there is a film out now on Netflix called Rising Phoenix, which is about the Paralympics? Well, it's, it's incredible. Uh, and it's incredible because of the quality of the movie uh, and, and the quality of the people involved with the movie, not only in front of the cameras, but behind the cameras. We are very proud to be involved in that project. The message is so strong, you know, the nine Paralympic athletes and their stories and the way they deliver their stories combined with the history of the Paralympic movement and the drama we have, we have faced as a movement in the lead up to Rio and how we reacted as a movement. I think it's, it's really clear to everyone who watches the, this movie that what we stand for as a movement and it's impossible for anyone who watches this movie to stay the same. You know, this, this movie changes people. It's impossible. Even, even me, now that I'm 23 years in this movement, but by watching it, you really reconnect in some way to, 
So the reason why 23 years ago I decided that I wanted to be part of this movement for the rest of my life. And whoever is not involved in Paralympic sport or in sport of with persons with disability on a day-to-day basis, they will certainly change their attitude and their view and, they, and, they, and, and how they perceive persons with disabilities. So I believe that if we have... If the movie has 10 viewers, uh, it will change 10 persons. If the movie has 10 million viewers, it will change 10 million people. So that's how powerful I see this movie. They will try to understand better that persons with disability, they are persons like everyone else. They have characteristics, but we should not label them. You know, you're disabled, you're an amputee. No, you're a person. And yes, you don't have a limb, but this is one part, is a small part of who you are. I think the film has had uh, about 10 viewers just in my own household. So I think, you, you, <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll be fine with 10 million. I, I think it's going to be, uh, well, it is, it is huge and it's only going to get bigger. No, it's just to say that, uh, that I don't think anyone, and when I say anyone, it's you know, literally zero. <laughs> uh, no one can watch this movie and, and stay the same. It's impossible. The film pulls no punches when it looks ha- at how close the Rio Paralympics were to not happening. It's an important distinction to make here that you were president of the Brazilian Paralympic Committee at the time, not the organising committee. Can you recount to us what was going on in those weeks before the Rio Games? Oh, yes, I can. It was super tough. It was, uh, there were some moments that when I really thought that, you know, the Games were not going ahead. But I think the way we reacted, and I remember when we were told by the organising committee leader, uh, senior leadership, that look, we may not have the the funding to hold the games, and we may, if we have the games, the games will be in a, in a very low, uh, lower level compared with uh, what we have planned. And uh, for a few moments, we were we were kind of you know frozen, static, and uh, but uh, immediately we started to work. So you know, our former CEO Chavi Gonzalez, he came to much earlier than he expected to Brazil, to Rio. So he started to reorganize the operations with the, with the funding available. I went to find uh, more money with uh, different levels of government in Brazil with some sponsors and tried to, you know, if the problem was money, let's find the money. And Philip was already there in Rio because, of course, he was an IOC member at the time. And so he was there because of uh, we were in the lead up to the Olympics already. It was very, very, very close to the game. So... So it was really tough in the beginning because we, we, when we finally found the money, we also had some injunctions coming and, and, and some organizations trying to not allow the, you know, federal government, the city government to put some money into the organizing committee. And I remember going to these courts and speaking with these judges and trying to make them understand what we were talking about here, you know, and, and what will mean if we, you can imagine Brazil canceling the Paralympic Games in a country with almost 40 million of persons with disability. What will be the message that, we you know, we don't care about you. You are canceling your games. And, and, you know, as a nation, we could not afford it. We could not afford it. So thank God everything went uh, the right direction. But there were some very, very, very tough moments when we, uh, we never thought in giving up. But there were some moments that we thought it, it was... It was impossible, but, uh, you know, inspired by the Paralympic athletes, we made impossible possible. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Rio 2016 Paralympic Games. So, you know, uh, the moment when I really, and let's say, understood or realized that the Games were, were, were going ahead was uh, during the, or at the end of the opening ceremony of the Paralympics. So that's, <laughs> I think that shows how, how tough the situation was. But because 
from the next day on, from the following day on, and uh, the day after the opening ceremony, then and then the athletes they come to the scene, you know. Then then it's up to them, and these guys they always deliver. You know, there's there was not a single doubt in our in our minds that you know if we provide a platform, the, these athletes will uh, they will perform at their best. The people will come. The stands will be full because there was so uh, a very poor promotion of the Paralympic Games uh, from the organizing committee side. So the ticket sales only started to pick up in the last week of the Olympics. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, we had, you know, full stadia. We had incredible crowds. And it, not only when it comes to the numbers, but also when it comes to the way they interacted with the Paralympic athletes and all only Brazilian uh, Paralympic athletes, athletes from all over the world in the way they understood what these athletes were doing. So I remember in Bocha, there was this moment where normally the crowds in Bocha, they are kind of quiet. And I remember that uh, in the venue, there was so much noise coming from the crowds in the, in the Bocha, and, uh, com- during the Bocha competition. The officials went to the coaches and the athletes and asked, do you want us to ask them to, to be quiet? And the athletes said, no, no, we don't. This is what we always wanted in a venue, in a Bocha venue. We want this, we are athletes. We want the people cheering, screaming, yelling, shouting and, and making some noise and enjoying themselves. I was at the Botcher in Rio working on, on radio and there was a Mexican wave at the Botcher and I'm sat there thinking, this is extraordinary. <laughs> this, is, it's a, this is a really sort of strategic, cerebral sport and there's a Mexican wave going on. It was, uh, it was quite remarkable. And this is what we had in Rio. I think this connection between the spectators and the athletes was just incredible and it was almost magic everybody listening to this andrew will have will have dealt with some sort of looming crisis or catastrophe at work perhaps not on you know the public global scale that you were dealing with but still how were you personally feeling through it all and and what were you doing to just try and cope with the the stress i guess the pressure of it all what i'm trying to do it's inspired by exactly Paralympic athletes is to try to focus in the things that I can do and not focus in the things I cannot do or I don't have any control of. So uh, I can't, you know, come up with a vaccine. I can't control the spread of the virus. But what I can do certainly is work 24 by 7 to have the best possible games in Tokyo, of course, if the conditions allow that. What I can do is to try to find opportunities in this crisis. What I can do is try to give support and assurance to the members of the International Paralympic Committee or even to the athletes themselves. And this is something I have learned, how to maximize the things that I can do and not bother, not waste my time being concerned on things that I cannot do. To be absolutely honest with you, last year I flew 111 times and now I'm at home for five and a half months straight. It's a new experience for me. Uh, and the positive side of it is that I'm closer to my family. So I, that's what I'm trying to do, trying to look the positive side of things and identify opportunities in the crisis. But again, I think my main inspiration is the, the attitude of Paralympic athletes and how they overcome challenges every day. Uh, so if they overcome challenges every day, I can do that as well. Would you say that the Rio rescue, if I can call it that, would you say... That's your proudest moment so far in your career? Maybe yes. Or, or at least the most significant thing that I've done in the Paralympic movement uh, was to, to be part of this rescue uh, operation. Uh, and I'm really proud. And I believe that after that, I can do anything that I set my mind to. One of the athletes who helped Rio breathe more than most 
was Daniel Diaz, the great Brazilian superstar swimmer. And there was an incredible moment at the Rio Paralympics where Diaz invited you up onto the podium to sing the Brazilian national anthem together. I think it was his way of thanking you, wasn't it, for for all your work as the as the president of the Brazilian Paralympic Committee. That must have been uh, pretty spine tingling for you and your family. Uh, that for sure is the highlight of my career, of my involvement with the Paralympic movement, because uh, an athlete like Daniel Diaz of, of you know of his caliber to do that, and you know it was not something that we have agreed before. It's not some. It was. And in that particular medal ceremony, uh, because of that gold medal, he became the best male swimmer ever in terms of number of medals. So he was super emotional. He was crying at a podium. And I presented him with the gold medal. We hugged each other, as we always do. Uh, he's a friend, and he's one of the best persons I know in the world. So we were ready to have the Brazilian national anthem uh, to be played, and he comes to me and and he says, come on, come, come, you know, come sing with me. And I said, no, 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 come on, it's the podium. Only for athletes, it's kind of a, a sacred place. I cannot go there. And then he came to me and he, <laughs> he basically pushed me to the podium to sing with him. So and it, was, it was an amazing moment. Uh, and I, I, I cry easily when I'm emotional. And, and I didn't cry in that moment. And some, many people ask me, well, why didn't you cry? We know you. Normally you cry in the occasions like that. And I say, look, I was in a different dimension. I was in uh, Nirvana or whatever you want to call it. I was not there. You know, I was kind of floating through that swimming complex. So, and of course, thinking not only in the challenges to put the Rio games together, but remembering the day when I, I was in the bus, I, I stepped down from the bus and I, uh, I knocked at the NPC Brazil headquarters door and said, look, uh, are you looking for a comms intern? I'm here. <laughs> so, uh, and all that journey afterwards and how much uh, I have learned. And even I, I met my wife in the Paralympic movement because she, she's involved with that question. So a big part of the, of the man I am, I owe to the Paralympic movement. So I think this was on my mind when, and when I was looking at that in that very moment. And, and, you know, again, having Daniel Diaz, he did, he didn't need to do that. We have a nice surprise for you here, Andrew. Take a listen to this. Olha, como eu já falei pro, pro próprio Andrew, né? Poder ter feito aquilo foi de coração, faria novamente, não teria problema nenhum em fazer isso novamente. Foi um momento, é, assim como tantos outros ali no Rio que eu vivi, espetaculares. E ali foi para coroar, é, de fato, um trabalho espetacular que o Comitê Paralímpico Brasileiro estava fazendo na administração do Andrew e para coroar e tudo que, que o Andrew simbolizava no movimento paralímpico brasileiro naquele momento. Now, my Portuguese isn't what it used to be, Andrew. So what was Daniel saying to you there? Ah, now you got me crying, man. Uh, <laughs> he said that he did it because in a way he was saying thank you for everything that I have done for the Paralympic movement. And uh, in some way he was also saying thank you to the Brazilian Paralympic Committee. Uh, you know, I was the leader of the organization and they were saying, look, thank you. Thank you for all you have done and all the effort you have put in. And he said, uh, I, and I would do it again. Uh, and this was one of the special moments I lived in Rio 2016. And it was special because I was recognizing someone who has done a lot. So, yeah, I think this is my gold medal, man. This is my gold medal for sure. Do you think there is something special actually about working in the Paralympic sphere versus, say, even the Olympic sphere or football? Or, you know, it feels to me like these kind of special moments can only and do only happen in, in Paralympics. It almost feels like the Paralympics changes everyone that that is involved in it. I agree with you 100%. There are things that can only happen at the Paralympic Games. And I think this is this is because the way this movement was 
was born, was created, it has developed itself and the people involved. The best thing we have in our movement is the people, uh, the athletes, uh, volunteers, coaches, uh, administrators. We have so many good and fantastic people in this movement. And I think we should all thank sometimes that how blessed we are to be part of this movement and learn each day from being part of this movement. Yeah, if you compare the Paralympic movement with some other sport movements, it's not that we are less professional. We are as professional and we, as any other sport movement. Our athletes, they are high-performance athletes. They train, they take care of their bodies, uh, of what they eat, of how much they rest and the quality of everything that they do. So we're talking about high, high performance here. But there is something bigger in the Paralympics. We, we often say that we are very, uh, as a movement, we are very genuine about what we do. We've been talking a bit about leadership in, in the course of this chat, and I think you may agree that problem solving is one of the, the key skills of a leader. And when I look at what you've had to uh, to deal with in your time, so obviously we've talked about the, the whole Rio situation, but after you became IPC president, it was the the World Swimming and, and Powerlifting Championships, wasn't it? And Mexico City had to be cancelled because of an earthquake there. We're now in the pandemic and it's causing all the issues with, with Tokyo. I, I, I get the impression your problem solving has been uh, tested to the absolute maximum in your couple of years as president. Uh, yeah, but the, this is, uh, it's, not, it's not only the president. You know, we have an incredible team at the, at the IPC. It's a team effort. And yes, it was an interesting debut. Don't tell me that I'm a, a president that is cursed, that bring these uh, things to happen. Please don't do that. But uh, <laughs> I think, yes, I, and I agree with you. You know, sometimes we are problem solvers. But my, let's say, leadership style is I like to see myself as a server. You know, I serve the movement. I serve the Paralympic athletes. I serve the membership and not the other way around. You know, the IPC as the umbrella organization, we need to serve them. And again, the president is just the first server. Maybe it, uh, it, maybe it was a kind of an introduction to what was coming, to have an earthquake. Uh, I think I was only two weeks in the position and no one in the world could expect a pandemic of this magnitude. But again, if you have the right team around you, if you have the right direction and, and of course the right purpose, I think we can overcome this, this situation as we did with the Mexico uh, earthquake and some other challenges that, that we had in the last few years. Where do we stand now in terms of the Tokyo Paralympics going ahead? And is it intrinsically linked to what happens with the Olympics? If the Olympics were to have to be postponed again, presumably the Paralympics have to follow suit? Well, to your second question is yes, it's, it's intrinsically linked to the, to the Olympics in, in the sense that we have two options here. We'll have the Olympics or the Paralympics, or we will not have the Olympics and the Paralympics. We can't have one game without the other. And, and that's for sure. This is not an option to have only the Olympics or have only the Paralympics. Uh, where we are in terms of Tokyo, of course, we have no control over the pandemic and no one can predict how the world will look like in, in next July, August or September. So what we're doing is, you know, we're putting our heads down and working really hard to prepare the games that are possible next year. We are reducing uh, and simplifying the games. We believe the games, not only because, of course, uh, there will be extra expenses to Tokyo 2020 to the Japanese government because of the postponement, but a sport event like the Paralympics and Olympics cannot be disconnected from the rest of the world or what the rest of the world will be facing. We know that even if there is a vaccine tomorrow, the financial situation of many countries have been hit really, really hard because of the pandemic. And then the right thing to do here is try to scale down some of the operations, uh, simplify the games, the way we deliver the games. And that 
that will be a blueprint for the future. I have no doubt about it. And we will only focus on things that are absolutely fundamental to run the games. Would you support the games going ahead without crowds, for example? No, I will not. I will not. And it's something that we're not discussing at the moment uh, with Tokyo 2020 because I believe the crowds are the spectators. And as I mentioned in Rio, the, one of the most important feats in Rio is exactly the connection between spectators and the athletes. And I never saw something like that in my life. And for sure, it will happen with the Japanese. It will happen with other host cities in the future. So I think I believe spectators are part of what we call the Paralympic experience. So I believe if we don't have spectators, it will not be the Paralympic game. So we will not be providing to the athletes a Paralympic experience. We've got into some weighty issues there, Andrew. So let's finish with a silly one. Um, what is the most presidential thing you do? Because as far as I'm aware, I don't think you have a motorcade or a jumbo jet to yourself like some presidents. So um, when, when do you feel most presidential? I, that's a funny question. Uh, I don't know. In presentation, in that in that sense, I think it's when I'm, uh, you know, probably wearing a suit and in a very official ceremony. But definitely, that's not the best part of my of my job. The best part <laughs> of my job is to be surrounded by athletes, but you know, but people who are involved with uh, with the Paralympic movement. But again, it's part of the of the job of a president to be presidential. Uh, sometimes I did have motorcades and, and when going to opening ceremonies and things like that, but it's not my style. It's a necessary part of the job, but not certainly not my favorite part. <laughs> well, thank you, Andrew, for your time. We really appreciate you uh, spending the time to talk to us. And I think everybody listening uh, shares your hope that everything goes more smoothly over the next few months and Tokyo uh, can go ahead next year and we can all revel in the Paralympics. And I think it's fascinating what you say about actually using the Paralympic spirit as a way of thinking about how we're all going to deal with this situation we're in. So thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure and it's always good to talk to you. You have been involved with the movement for a while. It's good to chat with someone who understands really well what we're trying to do here. Andrew Parsons there, the president of the International Paralympic Committee. He talked about focusing his energies on what he can change in a crisis situation. But like any good leader, he also stressed the importance of having a strong team around him. Hopefully you learnt something from Andrew that you can use in your own life. If that's the case, please do rate, review and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Next week, Australian Mika Horsberg will be joining me. She was born with a vision impairment and went through some dark times, both literally and figuratively, before the Paralympic sport of goalball saved her. We'll be discussing how she survived a period of bullying which drove her to the very edge and the importance of mental health. You won't want to miss that one. Speak then. Speak then.